Welcome everyone to a special The Contest 2024, where we look at the race for the most important job in the world, the presidency of the United States. And this is an I told you so victory lap for the firm, uh, which I love. Um, as you know, that, that doing what I do in political risk, I think is a lot like method acting. You can learn from your mistakes and you have to be open to them and you can learn from your successes. And that takes away the two things that drive most political risk and frankly, most NGO thinking at the moment. You have to get rid of false modesty. When you're right, you have to be very dissecting of what you did right. And when you're wrong, you have to be brutally honest about what you did wrong. That's the only way to get better like method actors in the early days of the Strasbourg studio, people like Montgomery Clift, James Dean, Marlon Brando, famously in the actor's studio, uh, understood under Lee Strasberg that this is the way to get better. And it's the way to get better at acting and it's the way to get better in thinking. And so I say to the staff all the time, no false modesty. When we get it right, we should scream it from the rooftops. A, so our clients feel reassured that we're actually good. And again, our call record is the best in the business above 80%, way above the monkey score of 50. And incredibly, some of my senior competitors are below 50, below the monkey score, which I wouldn't think possible. But if you're wrong about Afghanistan and you're wrong about Iraq and you're wrong about the financial crisis and you're wrong about the rise of Trump and populism and you're wrong about the rise of China and you're wrong about COVID, um, you just don't understand how the world works. And many of my competitors, particularly on the center-left establishment, have been wrong about all those things. Uh, so I don't know why anyone bothers to listen listen to them. Many of them seem to be in Davos at the moment, uh, probably looking at that ape score and yearning for it. But the only way to get better um, is not to be falsely modest, but on the other hand, not to do what these people do, which is pretend that they weren't wrong. Famously, one of our competitors was wrong about Brexit, said that he would give everyone $1,000 in the room um, if, uh, if Brexit happened. And after he lost, he made it clear that he just thought people would, would forget, that he'd have a bad couple of years, but people would forget. He'd never admit to being wrong, and things would go on as before. That is the definition of a failed society, when there are no consequences to being breathtakingly wrong and when people forget. It also means you don't get any better. And that's a lot of why people are dismayed this morning somehow that Donald Trump won the Iowa caucuses, which took place, by the way, in minus 45 degree wind chill in the blizzard where about a foot of snow was dumped. This reminds me of home in Ohio, uh, when if you're outside and your car stalls for 15 minutes, your life's in danger. Now, this played a factor in the caucuses because the weather was so dire, even for the Midwest in winter in January, this meant that people only went out who were highly motivated, and that did impact the result. Donald Trump won, as we predicted, uh, we predict, of course, from months ago, I think five months ago, that he was going to win the presidency. We were the first to call things for Trump, and he continues to march in that direction, winning 51% of the vote in the Iowa caucuses, uh, 30 points clear of Ron DeSantis at 21%, slightly clear of Nikki Haley at 19%, and then Vivek Ramaswamy got 8% rounded and dropped out afterwards. So 51, 21, 19, 8 were the numbers. Well, the first thing is that the wish casting against Donald Trump is finally stopped now that we have actual data as opposed to just polling data, which I think is pretty good, but actual voting data. Trump did better. He exceeded on the upside of even his upside 
um, and everybody knew he was going to win. The question was by how much. He won by the top end of what people thought. Instead of 20 points, he won by 30 cleanly. He, uh, his voters are highly motivated and didn't care that there was a blizzard, and that was always on the cards. Also, Trump's campaign this time around is much better run, and so the ground game, getting people out to vote, was much better than before, where there really wasn't any ground game. Uh, when Trump started in 2016, and the ground game in the snow matters, and Trump's ground game is quite good now, and his campaign is highly professional. And so far, they've run a very disciplined campaign, including about when Trump talks and when he doesn't, which is rather extraordinary, but but they've done a good job. So that helped. The motivation of his people and the, and, and the relative improvement in his campaign staffing has certainly helped. Um, and, and to make that number 30 instead of 20. To put this in perspective, the biggest win ever in the Iowa caucuses until last night on the Republican side was 12 points, and Trump won by 30. So this is an unprecedented victory. There's no way around that at all, even for the most establishment anti-Trump person. Ron DeSantis came second and probably just about saved himself. He's put all his chips down in Iowa he won the endorsement of major social evangelicals. Iowa is socially very conservative state, more so than the national average. And he had the endorsement of Kim Reynolds, the governor, and he basically moved to Iowa. He completed the Grassley test. He, he actually campaigned in each of Iowa's 99 counties, unlike the rest. Donald Trump popped in just a couple times, but basically DeSantis moved into Iowa and his ground game, which he spent all his money and all his time in Iowa, and it did bear fruit, and that beforehand his polling was showing he was behind Nikki Haley, and he edged Haley out for second place. This is due to the blizzard in his ground game, the professionalism of his caucus goers and staff and getting out the votes, the time he spent on Iowa. It didn't put him within the, in the race with Trump. It did, however, allow him to best Haley in a blizzard. Haley, on the other hand, um, who was who was riding big momentum going in, uh, was shunted down to third place because her people were less excited about her. Um, she had far less of a ground game. She's put all her eggs in the New Hampshire basket. And so that was that. And uh, Ramaswamy's 8%. Look, the guy came fourth uh, when no one knew who he was or how to say his name not long ago. And Vivek bested people like Mike Pence, former vice president, Tim Scott, uh, a senator from the state of South Carolina, uh, and did better than former governors like Asa Hutchinson and Doug Burgum. So it was it was an honorable finish uh, for Ramaswamy, who drops out. One of the reasons that one of the ways to do a podcast, and I'm showing you my method here, community, is to find something in the mainstream media that's that's patently false and and attack it, and you've got yourself a podcast. And I could do this literally every day. I read the Times of London every day to get the center-right establishment view in the UK, the same reason I, I grit my teeth and get through The Guardian to get the leftist, elitist BBC perspective in, uh, in England every day. You've got to read things that you don't like to be any good. Uh, read widely and read people you don't agree with who make you angry. Um, that's good advice for every business out there. And reading... The, these, the Establishment Times, which often makes me grit my teeth. Well, well David Charter, who's one of the writers there, made, made a rookie mistake in trying to understand the United States. And I'm amazed at how little people in Europe understand the United States compared 
you know, and so as the Americans don't understand Europe, well, America is a superpower, and boy, you don't understand the United States at all. And Charter made a comment this morning in his analysis that leads me into exploding the last anti-Trump myth. The notion that if all the candidates leave the field, that Trump can be dealt with in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. And the problem in Iowa is that DeSantis did better than expected slightly, Haley slightly less well than expected. So instead of Haley having a one-on-one, -on -one, she's the establishment darling, having a one-on-one -on -one race with Trump going forward, DeSantis stays in the race, and this three-way race will enable Trump to win. That's the lazy kind of elitist center-left understanding. Well, let me explode this last anti-Trump myth. Okay, let's look at the four uh, contenders in Iowa and see how votes would be redistributed. Trump's up by 30, so he's staying in the race. Let's look at the other three for a minute. Vivek Ramaswamy, who got 7.7% of the vote, let's say 8% of the vote. Who are Ramaswamy's voters likely to congregate to? Haley? Of course not. Trump. Um, Ramaswamy's been running almost as a Trump surrogate now for a while, and I think that really that, that lack of differentiation with the Trump brand is what ultimately cost him. Uh, he was doing early on rather interesting things in a libertarian mode in the party, but he moved to being a Trump cheerleader. Certainly the majority of his voters, 10, 10, 10 younger, will not vote for Nikki Haley, the establishment darling, making a fool of David Charter and this lazy anti-Trump view. They will vote for Trump. Obviously, he's cheerleading for Trump. So the people who support him will have Trump as a second choice. There busts the myth of the idea that everybody who isn't voting for Trump now is naturally going to vote for Nikki Haley. In fact, Ramaswamy's people would overwhelmingly vote for Trump, and 8% of the vote is not insignificant going forward. Secondly, if DeSantis were to drop out, which is secretly what all the Haley people were hoping, that she came second by enough, and he was third, that he'd drop out of the race because he's put all his eggs in the Iowa basket. And indeed, here they are right. It's hard to see where DeSantis goes from here. He immediately took a plane to South Carolina, bypassing liberal New Hampshire, uh, which is probably a good idea. And we'll talk about this again in a minute, uh, to try to have his aunt in Governor Haley's home state of South Carolina, which is socially more conservative and where he has a chance as he's moved on social issues to the right of Trump. But DeSantis voters, are they going to naturally gravitate to Haley? Far from it. It would seem to me that they would split somewhere around 60-40 in favor of Trump. Again, David Charter, you don't know anything about the makeup of the Republican Party. People wish cast Trump away. Most of Ramaswamy's voters will overwhelmingly vote for Trump. I'm sure of that. Most of DeSantis's voters, if he jumps out, are not going to be with Haley. But by 60-40, I would argue, will go with Trump. At worst, it will be 50-50 but I would imagine slightly higher than that. He's socially conservative, and he said Trump isn't conservative enough. This has been DeSantis' differentiation tag, to use a business term. And so the idea that if you get rid of Ramaswamy and DeSantis, that all these people in Iowa, this would be 21 and 8, these 29% of the vote, which is vital for Haley to have a chance, they're going to gravitate 100% to her, is fool's gold, is wishful thinking, is lazy establishment European Wilsonian center-left thinking. The very people who are wrong about everything in our Patrick Henry podcast and are now sitting in Davos wondering why the Eurasia Foundation can't get a score above that of a monkey in terms of their predictive abilities. 
because they are wishing away the reality of the Republican Party. So let's play the game one last time. Most of these voters, this is the last anti-Trump myth. If you didn't vote for Trump in Iowa, you're naturally going to vote for Haley in New Hampshire. And that's just not true, that, that, that Ramaswamy supporters will gravitate in the future to Trump. And by 60-40, I would argue that even if DeSantis dropped out, and he won't, he's put, done well enough to limp on into South Carolina, he'll ignore New Hampshire, that they're, that they're going to drop out. Well, let's play the ultimate uh, game. And, and we, we did a whole podcast on this, why I think Nikki Haley is the fool's gold of the 2024 election. It looks good, but it's not very valuable. It's pyrite. And it's not gold and you can't spend it in terms of political risk. Haley, as we've said before, has some unique advantages in New Hampshire because it, every, every state sets its own primary rules and New Hampshire's are particularly odd, meaning independent voters can vote in the primary in either the Democratic or Republican primary. And so you're going to get, get a lot of crossover vote from moderate, uh, from conservative independents and moderate Democrats who are going to vote not for Trump. And this will not be true in most primaries, which make you be a card-carrying member of the Republican Party to vote. That's a gigantic change. And that will skew in Haley's favor in, in New Hampshire, as we said, no doubt about it. Also, Haley's put all her eggs in the basket there, does have an organization there, does have a ground game there, unlike in Iowa. And this will help her get out the vote if we have another snowstorm coming up, which given New Hampshire, I love New England. I've been there. I campaigned in New Hampshire in 1992 for Bill Clinton. Remind me to add, tell me tell you about that sometime. I had a great time. I learned an awful lot about politics in Keene, New Hampshire, campaigning. Um, and you learn how things work on the ground. But the weather could well be awful um, come New Hampshire, but Haley has a ground game. So the rules skew her way. She has a ground game there. Chris Christie dropped out, and his supporters, who were new never Trumpers, will gravitate to Haley. And, and Christie was at a not insignificant 11%. Haley's well over 20. Um, and in most polls, she's within between, say, 9 and 15 points of Trump, a closer result going forward. Also, New, Ham New Hampshire is not, to put it mildly, indicative of the modern Republican Party. Uh, it's more libertarian. I love them. These are my people, Jeffersonians. Uh, but they're not Jacksonians. They're not the base of the party. They're libertarian Jeffersonians and not the Jacksonians who are key Trump supporters and now dominate the Republican Party that are a plurality of the Republican Party. And as we said before, there's a difference between being an elitist populist and a populist. As we say in The Last Best Hope, uh, Jeffersonians like me, like Johnny Cash, Jacksonians are Johnny Cash. There's a big difference as to background. Jeffersonians value the First Amendment, Jacksonians more of the Second Amendment, although both sides are suspicious of federal government power and both are critically realist. But this is a group of people where Haley can do rather well. So you're going to deal with this very atypical situation where Haley can bring in independent voters who can vote in the Republican caucus, where she does have a ground game, and where the makeup of, of the New Hampshire Republican electorate is certainly not the norm for the Republican Party, nor is it likely to be replicated anywhere else. So it's very possible Haley narrows that 9 to 15 point gap. She may lose close to Trump in New Hampshire. It could be a tie. And there's even an outside chance that she ekes out a win in New Hampshire. 
And then the anti-Trump press will go crazy and say, people like me were wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong. Look how well she's doing. And then they have two to three weeks to gin up support for Haley and show there is a horse race going on and that, that she can move forward from here. So that is all seen as a very positive, a positive thing going ahead. The problem is, where does she go? Uh, what's the path to victory? There can't be a data point to victory. There has to be a path to victory going forward. And it's nowhere. In the next state, South Carolina, her home state, where she was the boss, she's governor, she's currently down about 29 points in polls, meaning Trump would overwhelmingly thump her in her home state. It's hard to see how she could possibly carry on being thumped in her home state. It seems almost impossible. Uh, and then immediately after South Carolina, we have Super Tuesday, where you have to have national exposure. And it simply doesn't seem possible to get traction. She would have only South Carolina and Nevada as a launch pad, and she's nowhere in either state in the polling. And so this is where it ends, that even if she manages to eke out a victory, which is unlikely but possible, or loses closer than 30 points to Trump, which is highly possible, um, where does she go from there? So it all ends by Super Tuesday, which is what we predicted at the firm in the first place. Iowa is exactly the data point we said it would be. Trump won on the upside. The snowstorm certainly helped us. Uh, it was 30 points and not 20, which was the only question. But the Trump won overwhelmingly and by the highest margin ever in the, Republic, the history of Republican caucuses was on the cards. But it isn't that DeSantis stayed in that's going to ruin Haley. It's that Haley's neoconservatism no longer fits a party that is increasingly realist. And that is the best news coming out of the Iowa caucuses. The Jacksonian, Jeffersonian tie that the last best hope is based upon my book for renewing the Republican Party looks ascendant in the party. So for me, it's a great day. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed our short The Contest 2024 where we have a brief look at the Iowa caucuses exploding the last anti-Trump myth that if only everybody would get out of the race and leave it to Nikki Haley, somehow Donald Trump would lose. By actually looking down in the crosstabs of who would be getting out and who votes for those people, you can see that this is wish casting and simply not the case. One last thing, thank you to so many of you who have subscribed. Please do keep doing so. And for those of you who like this up-to-the-minute coverage as we go forward in the election, please do subscribe. We're only asking $70 a year, and you're going to get coverage up to the minute and on the money. Unlike everybody else in the mainstream media, we'll get it right, and we'll put our neck on the line. Uh, New Hampshire will be closer, but it doesn't matter because there's no launching pad thereafter. And that's what we're saying loud and clear moving ahead. Also, please do buy The Last Best Hope. It's available now in stores everywhere, and you can get it on Amazon all over the world. Please do go to Amazon and buy. That's, in effect, the top 40 chart. The book is doing brilliantly in the UK, and the campaign in the United States for PR starts this Sunday. And I promised I would go through briefly what's coming up. As things move along, I will tell you more about the PR as it moves forward. But initially, this Sunday, we're going to have book reviews in the Washington Times and Airmail. Tuesday, and I'll put this online, the John Quincy Adams podcast. We did it about the book with our friend John Gaze coming out. The Federalist Review will be Sunday the 28th. The Washington Examiner will review the book on the 29th. 
Newsweek will review the book early in February. Um, and at the same time, my friend David Banyan of the Political Risk Podcast, well, we did a great segment with him that's going to be out. And then on February 11th, the New York Post and the Epoch Times both will do reviews of the book. So we have nine solid pieces of PR already in the book, and we are just beginning. And so enjoy the ride. Please do tell everyone who would be interested to go on to Amazon, buy the book today, and on we go trying to remake the GOP to remake America and remaking America to remake the world. Have a great day.